Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. That's where we are in the text this morning. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. If you have a pen handy, would encourage you to grab a pen and to take some notes this morning. I think you'll listen better if you take some notes. Here we are, Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. The sermon title is A God-Sized Lesson. Has God ever taught you a lesson, friends? Sometimes God teaches us lessons that are smaller in nature. Sometimes God steps in and he teaches us lessons that are huge, that are enormous in nature. God is going to step right into Jonah's life here in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, and he is going to teach Jonah a God-sized lesson. Jonah chapter 4 continues to unfold God's tough love for Jonah. When we run, when we disobey, when we refuse to get on God's page and on his agenda, he will come alongside with tough love. He will discipline his own. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. He lovingly disciplines his own. And God continues to dialogue with Jonah and to work on his behalf because God cares so much for Jonah. God cares enough to come alongside and to teach his pouting prophet. God cares for Jonah, even though Jonah has been running away, even though Jonah's heart has failed to come in alignment with God's will for his life to this point. God cares for his servant. God cares for you and I. And God is not, God is not satisfied with mere compliance. If you think, if I think, and we all do at times, that God is satisfied with mere compliance in our lives, we've mistaken him. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want you to surrender your garments. He doesn't just want you to render your service. He wants your heart. Again, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I would encourage you to memorize that. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is not satisfied with Jonah's mere compliance, the fact that he just went to Nineveh, but he went under compulsion. He went under duress. God is after the heart of his servant, and he's going to teach him a lesson. It seems as though Jonah's heart hasn't changed a whole lot since his original call in chapter 1. And so God's getting ready to engage Jonah in a divine counseling session that he will, I think, never forget. God's calling his pouting prophet to a self-examination of his heart. And God calls us to that. God calls us to self-examine our hearts daily to see if our hearts are in alignment with, if our hearts are in conformity to, His word, his divinely revealed, expressed will for our lives. So that's kind of the outline. That's the structure this morning. That's the umbrella thought with which we will hang other thoughts this morning. Let me encourage you to stand this morning as we give attention and reverence to the reading of God's word. This is Jonah writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, and these are the words that he pens. Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you as I often do, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Here are kind of the two main points this morning, if you want to take some notes with which you can hang thoughts. Point number one on your outline is this. Jonah is going to try to outweigh God. Jonah is going to try to outweigh God in verse 5. And then the second major heading this morning with which thoughts will follow is that God lovingly reproves his own children. Here is Jonah sitting pouting out in the middle of the arid desert, trying to outweigh God, still trying to get his own way, still trying to get God to conform to his own agenda, and he's going to sit there and try to outweigh him. It's a bad idea, guys. There's one verse that comes to mind, and though the application is obviously different in Scripture, but a day is like a thousand days to the Lord. You try to outweigh him, you might be sitting for a good while. And Jonah is going to come, he's going to lovingly reprove, he's going to lovingly discipline, he's going to lovingly teach, he's going to lovingly correct his pouting prophet. Let me draw your attention back to verse 5 here this morning. Look at your Bible. Jonah went out of the city, that's Nineveh, of course, and set to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, we ended our study last week with Jonah pouting. He was angry with God. Specifically, we said Jonah was angry at God's freedom to be God. Jonah was angry with God's freedom to be God. I encouraged you last week to memorize Daniel 4.35. Anybody take me up on my encouragement? You got homework. Daniel 4.35. Daniel reminds us this. God The sovereign one. God does everything according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can say to him or stay his hand or ask him, what have you done? He's the sovereign one. He has authority to do with the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He's sovereignly in control of all things. Jonah was pouting because while he desired Nineveh to be destroyed, God instead desired to show mercy and grace and patience and kindness to Nineveh. Just didn't line up with Jonah's agenda. Verse 4 ended last week with a divine invitation to dialogue. I don't know if you caught that, but look at verse 4 here. Just back up one verse. And the Lord said, he's questioning Jonah, do you do well to be angry? In other words, is it right for you to be angry? Are you justified in your anger? The way that this text is actually written in the original Hebrew, it implies a negative response. God is asking a question to Jonah that he knows the answer to. The answer is implied. 
No, Jonah, you're not justified in your anger. No, Jonah, you have no right or righteous reason to be angry at me. Remember, I am the one who exercises control over the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. Who are you to say to me, what have you done? I am the sovereign one. But God invites, God graciously invites Jonah into a divine dialogue. But you'll notice as you look at verse 5, our opening verse for this week, Jonah does not respond. Jonah doesn't want to talk. God tries to engage Jonah in divine conversation, but Jonah does not want to talk about the matter. He's angry. He's not interested in talking. Friend, whenever God asks us a question like he asked Jonah here, do you do well to be angry? I noted some other questions that God has asked throughout Scripture last week. But whenever God asks a question like this, and again, his word is full of heart-probing questions, we must understand that whatever our thoughts may be, whatever our feelings may be, whatever our emotions may be doing at that point in time, God is always right. Our mouths are always silenced before him. God is always right. Man is always proved a liar, Paul tells us. Whatever your thoughts, whatever your emotions, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, whether they're high or they're low or anywhere in between, however you feel, God is always right. Just determine, be resolved to understand that now. Oh, you're not angry. It'll help you when you get there. It'll help you when you get there. Just resolve that God is always right. He's always right. He always judges justly. He always acts according to righteousness. God is always right. But Jonah didn't think that God was right. He still thought that he was right. And now Jonah, like an upset child, is storming out of the room in verse 5. Verse 5 tells us again, Jonah went out of the city, Nineveh, and set to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there, and he sat there in the shade till he should see what should come of the city. Now, what's going on here? Again, Jonah is going to try to outweigh God. Just east of Nineveh, Jonah makes a booth. Literally, the word there uh, in Hebrew is tabernacle. Jonah makes for himself a tabernacle. This is a small tent-like shelter. It's interesting to note uh, that for those Old Testament scholars among us, and this appears in the New Testament as well, but, but you might be familiar with the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was an annual celebration uh, among Israel uh, where God's people would come together and they would celebrate his faithful and covenant keeping, his wonderful providence to Israel. And so it's interesting, I think there's some irony here, that Jonah goes out in disobedience, mind you. He goes out pouting, storming out of the room, and he makes for himself a tabernacle, the very thing that Israel used, the very shelter that Israel used, as a way of praising God's providence, because Jonah's certainly not praising God's providence here in verse 5. But he makes for himself a booth, a tabernacle, some sort of small tent-like structure or shelter. Jonah may have, in a twisted way, actually seen his actions as a form of worship, because Jonah, as he's writing this here, as he's writing booth or tabernacle, all of those associations would have come to mind here. And so in some twisted, warped way, and remember we are Jonah, we, we do this as well, but, but Jonah may have actually been considering his, his actions as worship to the Lord when in reality 
He was standing in disobedience. We need to be careful there. Jonah hunkers down in this small makeshift shelter to see what would become of the city. And it's easy, easy to understand Jonah's desire for shelter uh, given the incredibly harsh environment of the surrounding land. Basically what Jonah did is he walked outside the city, he walked out to the desert and decided of all places he was going to pout, he was going to pout in the desert. Okay? You can understand Jonah's desire to make for himself some shelter here for the sun would have beaten down on him unmercifully without something to cover him. Jonah had gone into Nineveh to preach. His message, if you can remember, was, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But we should note here that we're not forty days after the fact. Jonah's message to Nineveh was, Forty days, and then you'll be destroyed, and then you'll be overthrown, and then God's wrath is going to rain down like Sodom and Gomorrah. Then God is going to nuke Nineveh off the map. Forty days, the clock is ticking, go. We haven't come to the expiration of that 40 days yet, so Jonah may be thinking in his mind there's still some time. So what Jonah does is he walks out to the desert there and he decides he's going to wait God out. He's going to wait till the expiration of that 40 days and he's going to see if God may not still yet destroy Nineveh. Because Jonah certainly wants a front row seat to the show if that's the case. Jonah might have thought to himself, too, that that Nineveh would be punished despite their widespread repentance. Because this took place, actually, from time to time in the Old Testament. Let me give you one instance here. Such was the case uh, at the death of David's son after he had confessed his sin in connection to Bathsheba. Right? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. David repents. Of course, Nathan comes to him and has to help him understand, you are the man. David repents. returns to the Lord, but there's still discipline. There's still, uh, there, there's still consequences to his sin. And so Jonah may have been thinking, hey, even though there's widespread repentance taking place in Nineveh, God may still yet judge them. And so that's what Jonah is presumably waiting to see. But God, to show Jonah what he knew not, namely the largeness and the completeness of God's mercy to patient Nineveh, and God's reasonableness of his grace and mercy made Jonah's booth, made Jonah's little tabernacle out in the desert, a school of discipline to teach him an important lesson about his character. Let me highlight at least a couple of mistakes that Jonah made. I think that there are more, but let me highlight just a couple of mistakes that I think Jonah made here in our text. Number one, Jonah quit. Jonah quit. Jonah tossed the towel in, and he gave up here. Jonah abandoned his mission to Nineveh. God sent Jonah to Nineveh for the express purpose of preaching to Nineveh, but when they repented, Jonah quit. Instead of staying there in Nineveh, and and like a good shepherd, like a good prophet, helping them grow and change and learn and apply God's word, Jonah checked out. Jonah exchanged his prophet card for the card of a victim, and he quit. He checked out. He didn't get what he wanted, so he didn't want to play. We've all been that person, and we've all seen that person, right? Just because they don't get their way, because the rules don't go according to their liking, they don't want to play. Such is the case here with Jonah. 
But friends, I wonder how many Christians give up on their God-given ministries every single day because God isn't working according to their expectations. Perhaps some in this room. Perhaps some of you have tossed the towel in on your God-given responsibility in ministry just because God isn't doing things your way. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So much higher are his ways and our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. But we've checked out because God isn't doing things according to our agenda. It's too difficult, we think. Any of you see yourself in the mirror here? I certainly can at times. I have a lot of perfectionist tendencies that course through me at any given moment of any given day. When things don't go my way or when things seem out of control or when I, when I can't have my hands on, on things in such a way that I feel that they're steadied, when God's agenda differs from mine, it can be easy to want to just toss the towel in or to want to go do something else. Jonah quit. Secondly, Jonah became a spectator. Jonah became a spectator. He quit, and then he went out in the desert, built a little tabernacle, a little booth, and he decided that he was just going to be content to be a spectator to the show. But Jonah was not called to be a spectator any more than Christians today are called to be spectators of the rampant sin and spiritual destruction that we see taking place in the world in which we live. We are not called to sit on the sidelines. We are not called to be spectators. A.W. Tozer once wrote about this tendency that resides in each one of us to be content with spectator status. This is what he said. Tozer said, we hear this line often. I'm a born-again Christian, and I'm happy that my sins are forgiven. I go to church on Sunday because I like the fellowship. And so we ask, do you not go to put yourself in the way of spiritual blessing? The answer is no, I'm saved. I don't need anything. So we ask the question, have you offered to witness, to pray, to encourage, to assist, to participate in your church's life and outreach and ministry? The answer is no. My church seems to be getting along just fine without me. This is something that we have to learn from sporting events. The great majority are spectators. The great majority are spectators. They come in and they sit. And they're content just to be. Just to be filled up, just to be given, just to be encouraged. All to go out and neglect using their own God-given giftedness to equip and edify and encourage the local body. Spectators. Spectators. Tozer goes on and he says, if there is any true spiritual life within us, God will gift us in some way, which he has if we've come to know him savingly. If you know Jesus Christ savingly, he's gifted you in some way, uniquely, at least a gift, oftentimes multiple gifts. Those gifts aren't given to you for your own sake, but for the good of the whole. Okay? Tozer goes on and he says, the humble soul will find something to do for God. How are we doing there, church? This is the old 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. God has saved us, and he didn't save us to be autonomous. He saved us to a body of believers that we would all contribute. We all have a part to play. We all have a duty to discharge. No one, no one is given the spectator pass. 
I want you to consider that, friends, as you think about the chapel, as you think about the various ministries that take place here at 2911 Coggy Road. Think about how you might be able to jump in in places that you have previously just been content to be a spectator in. Bear with me for just a second here. Maybe even giggle at my lame joke. There's a lot of taters in the church. Thinking about spectators first. Okay? A lot of taters in the church. They're spectators. When asked to participate in teamwork or projects, spec says no. He just spectates. He comes, he watches, then he goes home, he sees, uh, but he figures it's someone else's job to complete the task. He's a spectator. And then there's old dictator. Okay? He's the self-appointed leader. He's taking it upon himself to keep everyone else in line by, by telling them what to do and how to do it and when to do it. He feels it's his responsibility to keep everyone else straight. He's Mr. Dictator. And then there's Agitator. She keeps things stirred up by spreading some tale or story around about someone else. She's always ready with the telephone in hand, ready to share the juiciest story or tidbit about someone else. Agitator. She feels the only way that she can look good is by making everyone else look bad. And she's not always a she, friends. I, I'm, the personal pronouns cross gender lines, okay? Then there's hesitator. Hesitator. He. He's the one that's never willing to make a decision. He's paralyzed by the fear of failure. He's terrified by life's what-ifs. He's usually last to join in, but first to bail out at any sign of trouble. He's the hesitator. Then there's commentator. The one that's always got something to say about something. All he ever does is talk about what needs to be done. He talks about what's, what's, what's going wrong. He talks about how it can be done better. So all he ever does is talk, though. Like the old proverb, all thunder but no rain. That's commentator. Okay? Don't be a spectator. Don't be a dictator. Don't be an agitator. Don't be a hesitator. Don't be a commentator. Okay? If you want to be something, be an imitator. Be an imitator, okay? Follow me as I follow Christ. Find someone to follow. Better yet, be someone who's worth following. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. Be an imitator of godly people. Be a facilitator. This person is interested in helping others see. They succeed. They want to see people grow and develop. They take great joy in helping people accomplish things and be successful. They enjoy helping people grow. Be a facilitator. Be a sweet tater. Be a sweet tater. This person's an active team player. They have a sweet spirit. They have a sweet disposition about them. They always find the good in things. They always have something that is a word that is fitting and refreshing. It's life-giving, even when they have to look hard for it. Think about Paul's words here in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, noble, excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. Be that kind of person, okay? But most of all, don't be a spectator. Don't be a spectator, okay? Number two on your outline. Let's look at this God-sized lesson that God is going to teach his servant. This is verses six through eight. 
We see Jonah first in verse 5 trying to wake God out, trying to see if he is still yet going to get his way, if God is still yet going to flex to Jonah's agenda, to Jonah's plan. Jonah's waiting, and he's made things more difficult by himself by fretting. You ever notice that? People that, that fret, and we are this person a lot of times, oftentimes make life more difficult for themselves. Jonah could have just as well fretted in Nineveh, but he makes things more difficult by himself by fretting all the way out in the desert. Okay? We oftentimes compound the difficulties of life when we're just uh, digging our feet in the sand and determined to have things our own way, determined to fret. We oftentimes make life more difficult in doing so. But God's going to teach Jonah a lesson here. God's going to bring Jonah into the divine counseling room in verses 6 through 8. It's been said that tenderness in the heart of God is manifested not only in his compassion for repenting sinners, Nineveh, but also in his patience with repining saints, difficult believers. God being slow to anger in verse 2 attempted to reason with Jonah in verse 4 by asking him, do you do well to be angry? But again, Jonah didn't want to talk. And so now God gives Jonah a visual or an object lesson. God erected an object of Jonah's affection. There's going to be a creaturely comfort introduced into the story here in just a minute. It's a plant. Of all things that Jonah loves and gets exceedingly excited and glad about, it's a plant. Think about all the circumstances that have taken place between Jonah chapter 1 and where we are in the text and the thing that Jonah gets excited about as a plant. God's going to take this object of Jonah's affection and he's going to contrast it with the object of his own affection and his own concern, namely the souls of people. God's going to rebuke Jonah Not through a storm this time, but by exposing the selfishness of his likes and dislikes. God's going to expose Jonah's heart, and in doing so, he's going to expose ours too, because we are Jonah. We are Jonah. Look at verse 6. This is God's first object lesson here. Let your eyes find verse 6 in your Bible there. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that he might be shaded over his head. To save Jonah from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, let's kind of take verse 6 and break it apart into its constituent parts here. First of all, I want you to notice this phrase, now the Lord God. Now the Lord God, the use of the name Lord God is a bit unusual. As a matter of fact, this is the first time that it appears in Jonah's letter. This is the only time that it appears in Jonah's book. It seems to denote a deliberate change in focus from Lord to God. As many of you are probably aware, Lord, or Yahweh, was the covenant name that God used, was was how he was understood and known, specifically by Israel, as the one who acts with mercy and kindness and compassion to his people. Now, God's mercy and kindness and compassion was shown to Jonah despite his anger and his reluctance to accept God's call. So in that sense, we see God's Lordness, God's Yahweh-ness to Jonah. He's been patient with him despite Jonah's desire to run and to ditch his responsibility. But the use of God here, as well as in verses 7 through 9, point to the fact that 
God is the supreme ruler of all. This is one of the lessons that Jonah is struggling to understand. So, Lord God, Yahweh, first of all, God is the covenant-keeping God. He's kind and he's compassionate. He doesn't treat his people as their sins to deserve. But God, God, he's the sovereign one. He's the ruler. He's the one who is in control. But he's both. He's Lord God. The only time it's used here in Jonah's book. This isn't the first time that we've seen the word appointed, by the way. The Lord God appointed we saw that word back in verses uh, 6 through 8. It's, uh, it's the same word that was used back in chapter 1, speaking about the great fish. Now the Lord appointed a great fish. This word appointed here speaks to or points to or shines light on God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. Consider this, friends. From subatomic particles that your eye can't see, to galaxies that are unfathomable in size. God exercises comprehensive control over everything he's made, from subatomic particles to galaxies and everything in between. He spoke them into existence, and he sovereignly governs their every single action and movement. This is the same God who sovereignly appoints a plant to give respite to Jonah. There's a lesson to be learned here. Just in this one word, appointed. The lesson to be learned there, I think the lesson is this. Every circumstance that comes to pass in your life, friends, comes filtered through the sovereign hands of an infinitely wise and good God. Every single circumstance comes filtered through the hands of an infinitely wise God who cares for you beyond your wildest imagination. The good circumstances and those that are less than desirable, the sweet and the sorrowful, the merry and the mournful, the delightful and the dreadful, the awesome and the awful, they're all sifted through the hands of our gracious God. And he's at work in every single one of them. What are your circumstances right now this morning, friends? What are your circumstances? Some of you are sitting right, uh, right square in the middle of sweet. Your circumstances are wonderful. Some of you are sitting right smack dab in the middle of sorrowful. Some of you are at merry. Some of you are at mournful. Some of you are at delightful. Some of you are at dreadful. Some of you are at awesome. Some of you feel like your circumstances are awful. Where are you this morning? Wherever you are, you need to know that your circumstances are coming sifted through, filtered through the hands of an infinitely wise God who is sovereignly in control. Every circumstance of your life is under God's watchful eye and are serving his purposes for your life. Like a master tailor, God is stitching together, divinely stitching together a set of sovereign circumstances to mold you more and more into the image of his son. All of that theology from the one word, appointed. God appointed. He's the sovereign one in control of every single facet of your life. Notice the irony that God appointed a plant to save, your translation may say, to deliver Jonah from his discomfort. That's the purpose of this plant. God appointed the plant to save or deliver Jonah from his discomfort. The Lord's action graciously brought relief to Jonah's less than desirable situation. Again, let me take you back a verse. Jonah has made things worse for himself by exiting the city 
and pouting out in the middle of the desert. He has made his life circumstances by his own decision worse. And here God lovingly and kindly, graciously brings relief to Jonah's less than desirable situation brought about by himself. The word translated discomfort here. The Lord God appointed a plant to save or deliver Jonah from his discomfort. It's the word ra'ah. It's actually translated evil in a lot of other places. Matter of fact, back in chapter 1, verse 2, it's translated evil. Again, the author, presumably Jonah here, is using irony to highlight the fact that Jonah was ready to nuke Nineveh for its evil, but he was exceedingly glad when God graciously relieved him from his own discomfort or evil. Interesting also to note, this is the first time that Jonah is said to be happy about anything in this book. You notice that? This is the first time and the only time that Jonah is said to be happy about anything. Jonah wasn't happy about God's commission to preach to Nineveh. Jonah wasn't happy about the storm. Jonah wasn't happy about the great fish, though it was a means of saving him. Jonah, though with a little bit different disposition after he was spit out by the great fish, wasn't said to be happy about his second commission to go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah wasn't happy about the repentance of Nineveh, and Jonah certainly wasn't happy with God's decision to grant the repentance to Nineveh. Jonah was that person that we all know and that person that we all have been from time to time that seems to never be pleased. Those people that seem so hard to satisfy, that seem so hard to make happy. We are that person oftentimes, friends. We stand looking at ourselves squarely in the mirror here. This is the very first time that Jonah is said to be happy about anything God seems to be doing for him. You ever been pulling weeds in your yard only to come across the weed that seems determined to stay in the ground? Okay, you can raise your hand in church. Yep, we've all been there, right? And if you haven't been there, then you need to go pull weeds this afternoon. Okay? We've, we've all been there determined to pull weeds that are determined to stay in the ground because their root structure is so deep. Because their root structure spreads out so deep in the soil. Well, such are the roots of selfishness. They sink deep into our hearts. Selfishness is difficult, very difficult to uproot, friends. It's what Jonah's dealing with here. And it's what God's subsequently exposing in our own hearts. This tendency in us all to be selfish. My way or the highway. I'm happy when God is doing things for me. When God's not doing things for me, I'm unhappy. Selfishness. It's difficult to uproot. Friends, we're called to crucify our flesh with its evil passions and desires. We're called every single morning to rise out of bed and to put off the old man and to put on the new man, which is created in likeness after its creator. How are you doing there? Remember I said last week that if, if you don't kill selfishness, it'll kill you. If you don't seek to go at it at the root levels, not just playing with the fruit, picking the selfish fruit off the tree, but hacking away at the root system of selfishness, it will destroy your life. It'll destroy you. Selfishness changed the way that Jonah thought about Nineveh. Selfishness changed the way that Jonah thought about God. 
And selfishness changed the way that Jonah thought about Jonah such that he despaired even to live life any longer. It'll eat your lunch and charge you for it. Be uprooting selfishness at every instance that you see it in your life, friends. God comes along here and he's teaching his servant a lesson. He does it first of all with a plant. He gives some respite to his servant, which tells us something. God made a tent, God made a booth, God, or I'm sorry, Jonah made a tent, he made a booth, he made a shelter, but it was insufficient, right? It was insufficient for his needs. God comes along and overnight appoints a plant to grow up to give respite to his servant. But then, but then verse 7, there's a worm. Let me draw your attention there. Let your eyes look there in your Bible. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Okay, 24 hours or less. God appoints, the same word there, sovereignly decrees a worm should attack the plant that God provided for Jonah such that the plant dies and now Jonah is left under the scorching heat of the sun out in the desert, pouting. Jonah doesn't have very long to enjoy the relief brought by his leafy companion. What God appoints now is not for Jonah's relief, but it's rather to highlight God's destruction. At dawn the very next day, God appoints a worm to attack the plant, causing it to wither and die. And it's interesting to note that although verses 6 and 7, if you look at them there in your Bible, although verses 6 and 7 have almost identical beginnings, they introduce two opposite aspects of God's nature. Verse 6, God's ability to deliver. Verse 7, God's sovereign ability to destroy. Though they start out the same, they point to or they highlight or they shine light on two opposite aspects of God's ability, of his nature. He's able to deliver with the plant. He's able to destroy with the worm. And he's right in whatever he does. Right? We've already decided that, correct? God is right whatever he does. God is dramatically revealing that his sovereignty is not restricted to acts of compassion exclusively. As the one who gives life, he also has the right to bring it to an end. The prophet Samuel reminds us this, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich and he brings low and he exalts. He has sovereign control to do whatever he pleases. Though Jonah was exceedingly glad as a result of the shade that God provided, the very next day brings circumstances that Jonah absolutely now despises. Again, Jonah's not happy anymore. The one time Jonah was happy was short-lived. Jonah's not happy anymore here in verse 7. It's interesting. The shoe that Jonah wanted Nineveh to wear is now squarely on his own foot, and he realizes it hurts. Catch that? The shoe... The shoe of destruction that Jonah wanted Nineveh to wear is now firmly resting on his own foot, and he realizes it hurts. I don't like it. That's the very point, that's the very lesson that God is teaching here. When Providence determined to give Jonah shade, he was happy. But when Providence determined to give Jonah a season of distress, 
Jonah balks. He's not happy anymore. Here are a few questions to test your character. You might want to write these down if you're taking notes. Just a, a few simple questions to test your character. How godly, how Christ-like is your character? We'll answer these three questions. Number one, what makes me happy? What makes me happy? Number two, correspondingly, what makes me angry? What makes me angry? And then third, what makes me want to give up? What makes me want to toss the towel in and abdicate my responsibility? What makes me want to sit content on the sideline of spectatorship? Answer those three questions and you'll learn a lot about your character. So will I. So will I. Here's another lesson to be learned here. Creature comforts, namely the plant here that God provided, which God graciously gives each one of us, okay? God is gracious and he gives each one of us creaturely comforts beyond, beyond any deserving, okay? Those creaturely comforts ought to be enjoyed. They ought to bring about a response of thankfulness in us, but we ought not be exceedingly glad because of them. And here's, here's my point. You say, well, Jonah was exceedingly glad. Yes, I understand that. The point that I'm wanting to make here is don't be exceedingly glad specifically because of the creaturely comfort that God graciously gives. Be exceedingly glad in God alone. Because then when the creaturely comfort is not there, you'll still be glad. Be exceedingly glad in God alone. The psalmist writes that in Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Friends, can you be happy? Can you be happy even when your circumstances are less than desirable? One of my favorite verses, which I say that often, so you probably think every verse is a favorite, and it probably is. Uh, there, there are many of them. But one of my favorite verses is Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. The prophet Habakkuk writes, Though there, there are no figs on the tree... And there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields fail to produce food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in my God, my Savior. Yet, even in spite of, I will rejoice in God, my Savior. Our hearts oftentimes struggle to sing whatever my lot he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Catch that little line there, whatever my lot. He's taught me to say. Then we see a scorching wind, verse 8. Let your eyes look there. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and it beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God follows his object lesson using the plant and using the worm by turning up the heat a little bit on Jonah. God does this to us as well at times. He turns up the heat on our lives. He does so to Jonah by way of a hot wind. Now, this probably doesn't resonate a whole lot with us here in the part of the world which we are geographically situated, but for anyone working outside in the ancient Near East, they would have understood what these hot, oppressive winds were that came down, swooping down from the mountains. These oppressive and overwhelming winds blew down at excess of 60 miles an hour, and they were so charged with positive ions, they literally affected the serotonin levels and other brain neurotransmitters, causing exhaustion, depression, and feelings of unreality. This was an oppressive heat that God appoints, sovereignly appoints. This was a lot for Joseph, whatever my lot. This was a lot here. 
God is sovereignly appointed for Joseph or for Jonah to teach him a lesson. It's interesting to note here, play on words in verse 7. There's that verbal phrase, beat down. The Lord appointed a scorching east wind to beat down. It's the same word that is translated attacked in verse 6. So here's what we have here. God appointed the worm to attack the plant, and here in verse 7, or verse 8 rather, he appoints the scorching wind to attack Jonah's head so that he becomes faint. What God is doing here is he is literally exposing Jonah to heat exhaustion to remind him that he is not in control. God is the one who calls the shots. God is the one who calls the shots. Here is the divine counseling room that Jonah is in. God is using the object lesson of the plant, which makes Jonah exceedingly glad. And then Jonah's gladness vanishes like a vapor when the worm comes and the plant is eaten and withers. And now God exposes him to the heat. God turns the heat up. Well, what's Jonah's response here? Look at the end of verse 8 as we land the plane this morning. Jonah speaking here, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. This is the third time that Jonah has expressed to die here in his book. He told the sailors to hurl him overboard in chapter 1. Last week, he begrudgingly asked God to take his life. And again in verse 8, Jonah requests to die. I mean, Jonah has lost all perspective here, which, by the way, that is what self will do to you. Self will skew your perspective Friends, when we're consumed with self, it's all we see. You see, Jonah can't have it his way, so he doesn't consider worth a life worth living. He's, referred to, he's reverted back to his old mood again. He's unhappy. He's disgruntled. He's dissatisfied. He's angry with God. When things don't turn out as we desire, we often, like Jonah, find ourselves angry at God's will for our lives or God's lot for our lives. I mean, Jonah has run the gamut of feelings here in this little book. He's progressed from a simple little pity party, woe is me, to depression, where he didn't even feel like getting up from the belly of the ship. From there, he he transitioned into despondency, where he literally mentally checked out emotionally. From there, he, he moved on into despair, where he couldn't see anything good, and now he's sitting right smack dab in the crosshairs of a death wish, because he can't seem to make life fair in his own estimation. Friends, God is not constrained to make things fair for us. As a matter of fact, you don't want fair. Fair sends every one of us to hell without excuse. But Jonah can't seem to square things being fair in his own life, and so he's angry about it. He's angry about it. Such are the tracks we'll travel on if we refuse to live in light of God's will for our lives. Pity party, depression, despondency, despair to a death wish. God, just take me out. Jonah called the city of Nineveh to repent. That was his call. That was his preaching. But ironically, Jonah is refusing to repent himself. We saw some repentance back in chapter 2, but now we're back at square one again. There's a refusal to repent. Jonah was more concerned about his creature comforts than he was about winning the lost. Here's the ironic thing. The storm, the sailors, the fish, the Ninevites, the plant, the worm, and the scorching wind all obeyed God, but Jonah still refuses to obey. We are him. We are him. Friends, we are Jonah. We're fickle, we're disobedient, we're selfish, and we're often unhappy with our lot in life. But thanks be to God that he sent his son to live perfectly obedient in our place. 
Thanks be to God that he's patient and long-suffering with us. Thanks be to God that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank God that he divested himself of something. Our minds can't even fathom something of his heavenly abode, something of his glory. He kenosis, he emptied himself, Philippians 2, and took on human flesh, became like us. He might live perfectly and walk to a Roman cross, willingly giving his life up for us. 